This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by filmmaker Bill Masoulis. Hey, Bill. Uh, hello, Flick. How are you? I'm very well. And I've also got the, one of the editors of film journal Senses of Cinema, Fiona Viella. Welcome to Primal Screen, Fiona. Thanks. Thanks, Flick. Great to be here. Yes, it's nice for you um, to have you both on. Um, we're kind of doing, uh, somehow worked out to be a bit of a spotlight on Melbourne film culture um, across both written uh, film criticism, but also um, filmmaking. Uh, tonight's show, we're going to be talking about a micro season of Melbourne Cinematheque, which features uh, your work, Bill, uh, which is starting this Wednesday. Uh, it's one night only, and there will be uh, two features, and I think what would that work out to be? Three or four, four, shorts? four shorts? Yeah, fantastic. And we're also going to review two retro titles. We haven't done that for a while. Um, these are both currently streaming free on SBS On Demand. We've got uh, Christoph Kilslowski's uh, A Short Film About Killing and Nani Moretti's Mia Madre. Uh, and, Bill, you are credited with... Um, being one of the key figures in the independent Australian screen culture uh, for, like I said, 40 years in the industry, that's, that's quite impressive. And now Melbourne Cinematheque are going to be celebrating uh, your 40-year contribution to film culture with a special showcase of some of your films, uh, both feature length and short this Wednesday. Um, it's a real challenge to uh, summarise your extensive and varied career in film, so apologies for uh, all the emissions I'm going to make. But here goes. You were one of the key instigators of the Melbourne Super 8 Film Group. You're one of the founding editors, along with Fiona, of Senses uh, of Cinema, uh, creator of the Pure Ship website, which, yes, I think is named after that 1976 That's classic. Sure. <laughs> which actually screened at MIF, um, was it last year or the year before? Uh, last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. loved yeah. it. One of my favourites from the festival. Okay. I hadn't had an opportunity yeah. to see it. I do know that there is a DVD copy of that film at uh, the last remaining DVD store in Melbourne, which is in Richmond on Swan Street. And I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Picture Search. Picture Search, yes. Um, fantastic shop there. And you can you can get a copy of Pure Shit, which is very hard to get your hands on. Uh, I, I bought my copy for $100 uh, about a year or two back. Yeah. Really? How did you find it online? Uh, no, just a, a friend of mine, a film buff, um, he said he was a bit short on cash and I knew it was it was worth about 100 but it might be going for more soon because those rights of that DVD are just kind of gone and mm. I don't know too much about it, but the, but the director, Bert Dealing, uh, the rights reverted to him and he died recently. So mm. uh, what's going to happen with that film? I'm, I'm not sure at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Actually, well, I was wondering, Bill, when you screened it, did you, did you when, when you screened it as part of the um, Unknown Pleasures mm. program of films, was it, on, was it screened on film or was it a, a DVD? Uh, no, definitely DVD, and and I just um, spoke to the director via email, and and he gave me a, like permission to screen it, and I screened it in Adelaide one day too, and yeah, just off the DVD, and 
you know, and, and that DVD has a kind of sort of mini restoration by the by the archive, but it's not that great quality. So he's hoping that a proper mm. kind of restoration, high def restoration can be done because it's actually pre sort of pre high def. It's mm. not really high def, of course. It's not Blu-ray and yeah. And the Unknown Pleasures, which Fiona mentioned before, is, of course, your screening series uh, that's currently at Thornbury Picture House, um, yeah. which you co-curate with Chris Oscree. And I've had Chris on the show many times, mainly talking yeah. about some of the excellent films and filmmakers that you do showcase as part of that screening series. Um, and Fiona, you've actually written an article about this upcoming micro-season at Melbourne Cinematheque, or more specifically, one of Bill's short films. Um, And you describe him in the article as the true unsung hero of Australian independent filmmaking. I couldn't agree more, and I also cannot think of a more perfect pairing, therefore, than uh, you and Melbourne Cinematheque, because, you know, as many listeners will know, Cinematheque is uh, one of the longest-running I think it is the longest-running film society in Australia. Uh, it started off back in 1948, back when it was called uh, the Melbourne University Film Society. I think mm. that back then, and I was reading this in an interview that um, Digby Houghton did with you the other day, Bill, mm. and he mentioned a connection between Pewership, which we were discussing before, and um, MUFFS, uh, M-U-F, the Melbourne University Film Society, was that um, Bert Delling was apparently an editor for annotations, which then got changed into the annotations that we that you now provide, you know, Senses of Cinema provides for cin- Cinematech, which I didn't realise that that connection. Yeah. Oh, look, there's, there's a probably a really huge history there that is just not, you know, well-known. Like, mm. I mean, uh, John Hughes' film, Senses of Cinema, which unfortunately has the same title as the, as the website, <laughs> I know. John Hughes's film, Senses of Cinema, goes through like the Melbourne Filmmakers Co-op in the in the mid-70s and and some of the figures in there. And um, I think Bert Dealing got a little bit of a mention in there, but not really. He does, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and look, there's all kinds of connections with um oh, I don't know, other filmmakers, uh, Nigel Bust and and all kinds of people. I think Barry Humphreys is connected as well to uh, Muffs, the Melbourne Uni Film Society, in those uh, in the early fifties, mid fifties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a few kind of people um, there. And mm. we we actually, I think last time we, uh, one of the times we had you on the show was when uh, Eloise was guest hosting, and yes. you actually did recommend Senses of Cinema, John Hughes's film. I had the pleasure of being okay. on a panel. Mm for uh, MIF with John Hughes and um, fantastic meeting him, but also just an amazing documentary, but an amazing resource if you're interested in following, in looking into all of those film societies. Um, that whole idea, though, mm. of Melbourne being at the centre of film culture, I think we have such a rich history that a lot of people don't always know about. Um, Fiona, you were involved with, of course, the, one of the founding editors of Sense of Cinema. Can you take us back to what it was like when you first set it up well um so that was uh, at the end of 1999 uh over 20 years ago now and I guess yeah at that time Melbourne Cinematheque was was uh kind of as big as it is now really um and it was the focal point for Melbourne film culture and I, th- I think that's uh you know Bill and I um not necessarily met there but we certainly got to know each other attending those screenings um 
and I, I and I met a lot of other people um you know associated with Melbourne film culture through the Melbourne Cinematheque and and I guess for, for Bill and I we uh, felt like at that point uh, the Melbourne film scene needed a kind of uh, really kind of cinephile-driven film publication. Um, there were a few publications out there, like uh, from uh, based, uh, produced by people in Melbourne, Australia, but we just felt like um, they didn't, uh, They maybe they were academic or they were um, too kind of commercial in focus. So we wanted to put something out there mm-hmm. that was kind of like um, not driven by commerce, but really driven by people's love and passion and curiosity for film and all kinds of film, Australian film, independent, experimental, um, and from all around the world and all, all different formats. So that was kind of the, that was the, yeah, the desire that we had. Um, and then, you know, from there, it, it once it was out in the world, it, it kind of really took off. It really spoke to um, a, a broad audience and quite an international audience, in fact. So it, but within the first 12 months, um, it became very well known internationally. So and yeah, just a runaway success. Yes, absolutely. It, it, it was. It was also like you know on the relatively new uh, form or format of the internet as a as a website, which the internet really only kind of kicked off in. I remember in nineteen ninety five in particular, just kind of like AI has its year this year. Um, the internet in ninety five was all of a sudden the thing that everyone had to have and. And so in 1999, there were a film, a few film uh, journals online, but not too many. So we were kind of uh, at the forefront of that. Um, and I think we, yeah, we started like publishing the the Cinematheque's annotations in there too. Um, I'm not sure when, but maybe after a couple of years, I think they were still going in print kind of form mm. at the screenings, just kind of being handed out as sheets of paper. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's all, yeah, it's all like, you know, desire, you know, people mm. like us have the desire to do something and, and then we go ahead and do it and, and it can, can create, um, a, a culture and a, and an avenue there, a, a website in this case, uh, that can kind of grow and, mm. and be part of the, the Melbourne film landscape and the international landscape, as Fiona mm. says, well, that's because why, it's on the internet, yeah. Yeah, well, that's why I really love the name that, that you and Chris have chosen for your screening series, Unknown Pleasures, because mm. you are spotlighting films, filmmakers that people may not be aware of, and it's a real education. And Fiona, you touched upon this as well with Senses of Cinema, that it really provided a resource for people to go to. And I remember as a student 20 years ago in film school looking to to these sites and learning so much and it was an education and um, then, you know, however many years later being able to write for Senses of Cinema, I should should have that as a disclaimer. I'm also involved, I am on on the board for Melbourne Cinematheque, which for listeners, if you're not aware, is a not-for-profit screening series. It uh, runs every Wednesday and you do... um, you know, obviously, uh, it's currently at Acme. It was at Capital for a little while, so p- people might get confused. But it's um, a fantastic showcase of films, and it, it can offer people who are not at film school or have no intention of going to film school still an education or an introduction to, to film, which is really exciting. Now, Bill, like I said, there is yep. going to be a micro season, which which is a term that we're using for just one night of, of yeah. your work. Okay. Um, so 
tell us what what we can kind of expect. What tell us a bit more about the films, I suppose, more specifically that have been selected for this Wednesday. Um, well, it's it's basically a, a real kind of you know sweep through um, almost all forty years of my filmmaking. I mean, the fact that the very first short film on on Wednesday night is from nineteen eighty three, so it's actually from forty years ago <laughs> itself. Um, and then there's another short film, and both are made on Super 8. Um, that one is from the late 80s, 89. And and then, you know, there's one of my features uh, called Lovesick from 2001 or 2002 when it was released. And, and then after the break, there's some more recent work uh, of my time in Greece. So I basically... I was in Melbourne making films and, you know, very happily uh, doing that and... And then one of the features got into um, some European film festivals, uh, so I thought, okay, this time I better go and have a look and have a you know feel around and see what that experience is like. And and yeah, I just loved uh, being at those festivals. That was in two thousand and eight, and then I started living in Greece for about eight nine years, and and I made two features there, and one of them will be screened on Wednesday night. Um, so, yeah, it's a real kind of sweep through, like, all 40 years um, in a way. I mean, there's various other works. There's, like, some funded 16 mil shorts that have a bit more polish to them from the late 80s, but I didn't want to screen those. I thought, you know, just kind of some more interesting kind of works. Mm. And, and there, and, and my... and. Uh, one of my funded shorts, <laughs> I, I don't like it that much myself. And then, <laughs> really? Uh, each artist has their own prerogative and, and preferences when it comes to their work, I guess. And uh, so these are some of the films um, that I like uh, that have been programmed on Wednesday nights. And, um, yeah, and, and as for what kind of films they are, it's, you know, they're... I like to say um, to people over the years, I've said that my work is all of realist, humanist and formalist. So there's a a bit of like Goddard in there and a bit of Brisson and a bit of Eric Romer and, and, and this kind of thing. So it's so that's roughly what the films are like yeah (laughs) (laughs) well for listeners who have just tuned in i'm speaking with filmmaker bill masoulis and editor fiona villavieu um Valella. (laughs) i'm sorry i I need another coffee for tonight um at the center of uh, Lovesick in Melbourne, which is one of the films that will be screening, the first film that will be screening um, on Wednesday, you have two lovers, um, both artists who are striving but struggling to make art. Um, They live in this tiny apartment and have just quit their jobs to pursue creative passions. Now, Bill, you kept a diary uh, during the making of this film and it is still accessible online. Um, Mm. It provides a really fascinating insight into the process of filmmaking and it's also extremely honest. Um, You write in one of the entries, the past week has felt like trying to give birth. At its worst, around Thursday of last week, it was a nightmare, full of tension with just no end in sight, no light in the tunnel. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of budding filmmakers listening tonight who are facing the rising cost of living, uh, cuts made to film funding, 
and maybe maybe wondering how they can continue with their passion. Um, what do you remember? What motivated you to keep going and to continue making films? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just like this uh, inner drive, this compulsion. I have to express myself artistically, and and uh, I'm not sure it. it, it yeah, I'm not sure exactly why I've got that um, kind of drive and um, psychologically, you know, what's caused that. But but that's what it is. And whether that comes from like an extreme love of the cinema and and just wanting to to do it myself as well, um, I'm not sure. But but yeah, there are ob- the obstacles are many. And you know, for as we know, films cost money to make, but it is a bit like, um, you know, how long is a piece of string? You know, mm. you can actually make a film with a very short piece of string with just a little bit of money, especially these days with digital cinema. So uh, when I shot Lovesick, it was shot on film on Super 16. And even at the very, very minimum, I had to spend about twelve or 14000 uh, which in these days would be double that or maybe 40000 worth. And um but was you know that, I found a way to do it and Bill uh, was the uh, was that mostly on the film stock is that what that money went to Yeah mostly on the film stock mm. and the processing and and that kind of thing and and also a, a bit on like uh, the telecine you know at the time you you know it was in that period in the early 2000s when uh, a lot of films even in the mainstream were were going like you know shoot on film and then edit digitally and and kind of release um, on film sometimes. So they'd kind of have the three stages with a, with a digital stage in between the film shoot and the film release. Uh, so it was changing. So I knew that I couldn't edit on film and then create a 35mm print. That would have been beyond my means. So, you know, computers were around then and and you could edit films quite easily. Uh, just in standard definition mode, you know, high def came mm. in 2005. So, and even then high def editing was a bit difficult for the first, you know, few years. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it was just kind of film stock. And and that, that's, I think, uh, what a lot of filmmakers now should be concentrating on, not ne- not necessarily film stock, of course, but but concentrating on the essentials and 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 just kind of, the problem is, of course, it depends what kind of genre you're working in. With me, you know, working in realism and everyday life and everyday characters, you know, it's easy to to make it, you know, without sets, without action scenes, without, you know, all this kind of thing. So a lot of filmmakers, you know, can't do that. They don't want to do a film like that. So, um, but there's also a, a lot of leeway there where, People can actually, um, you know, cut costs and they don't have to have a $5 million budget, you know, and 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 that's where the Australian government is failing at the moment. There's no, you know, grants or investments at the $500,000 mark or $200,000 where a lot of filmmakers can actually make films, uh, feature films for that kind of money. Mm. But the government, because we live in such a capitalist and, and money-driven kind of world here in Australia, um, it's just not encouraged, you know. Mm. So all, pretty much all 
mainstream films and even the indie ones from whoever, you know, Warwick Thornton or, or anyone, you know, un, underneath, well, Warwick makes more mainstream things now, but, uh, you know, it's all at the 5 million and above range pretty much. So, mm. but there are really kind of low budget filmmakers, of course, uh, making films for five or $10,000 and there's quite a heap of them. Mm. But the thing is, there's a big divide now between that top end of budgets and that lower end of budgets. There's no middle range budgets of half a million, like mm. I said. And that has such a huge impact on what kind of story you're telling. Like you said, you can have ways around of, of cutting costs depending on what you're presenting on screen. If you're not going to have these big stunts mm. and things like that, there's things that bring the cost down. But it's so interesting to hear because you, you've produced over 100 short films and feature-length films um, and, like you said, across different styles and formats, um, Super 8, 16mm and lots of different iterations of, of digital video. Do you have a, you know, before we've, there's this misconception perhaps um, that film costs a lot of money Um, and like you said before that it was the majority of your budget and I spoke with David Heslin a few weeks ago, he's the editor of um, Metro magazine and he said that that is uh, a misconception. I have spoken to artists film workshop who do teach students in how to use film. Do you think that's still true today that that film has this big cost or is it people shying away from it for other reasons? Oh, they're showing away for just basically because of, you know, reasons of convenience mm. and, you know, things like that. So there, there's obviously a growing movement at the moment with, you know, shooting uh, on film and, and, and not a not a nostalgic uh, retro, what's the word? Um, Nostalgia? You know, kind of, it, it's basically being done a lot by younger people who were never there, you know, 20 mm. years ago, 30 years ago when film was the only thing that existed. So mm. um, people you... like uh, Andrea Serginopoulos, uh, who you know, mm. obviously, and his film Friends of Mine, which is a beautiful little film and, yes. um, you know, shot on film. Do you, uh, Bill, do you, um, do you miss shooting on Super 8? Is there something about the format? Not that... really. No, no. It's you, you basically evolve and you you can't, you can go, you know, back and forth, of course, but... Uh, I feel quite comfortable, you know, with digital, and and I feel like I I did a lot of films on film, and I really savoured that, and and I got a lot out of it, and I, I I don't feel the need to kind of go back and try and mix that up again, and you know, shoot on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, my only regret is, you know, I never shot anything on thirty five mil, but then again, who has? I mean. <laughs> I would look at, you know, Goddard's films of the 80s. I'd look at them at the Cinematheque on the screen and they were so beautiful that I just wanted, I wished that I could make a 35mm film that looked like that, you know. But then it's his play with light and things like that, of course, that makes him beautiful. But, Mm. yeah, if I could have shot something on 35, maybe one day still, but I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Bill, you mentioned... uh cinematic influences before um but i'm thinking i I reread fiona's excellent article on on your work or more more specifically about your short film dreams never end from 1983 now Mm. fiona your article is called a poetic kind of realism um i love that title and throughout the article you you evoke all the poeticism that is in bill's work Mm. Mm. now bill you didn't go to film school is that right so That's correct. I'm yep. curious, what 
does poetry is poetry an influence for you or or are there mediums outside of cinema that influence you outside of you know you mentioned Goddard and Bresson of course but well outside of cinema I'm really only influenced by music um is a huge art form for me mm. and the interface between music and film I really love and uh, but otherwise, I just kind of uh, locked into the cinematic experience um, as as I was, um, you know, seeing it and discovering it, and and because I, I wasn't into the cinema as a teenager, so then at the age of eighteen and nineteen, uh, I started watching films seriously, and you know, I was looking at Hollywood films, and and they were fantastic. I you know, I had my favorite directors then, even Steven Spielberg, and but you know, people like Capra and a bit of Hitchcock. Um, you know, I loved Scorsese at the time. Um, but you know, then when I discovered European cinema, and and when I'd see someone like uh, Bresson, you know, I saw Mouchette pretty early, The Devil probably, um, um, and then and and then of course uh, I, I was lucky enough to experience the Valhalla Cinema in Richmond. Uh, on Victoria Street in 1982-83 they used to play you know like foreign uh, films constantly and I would be down there two or three times a week you know I'd, I'd be seeing Bunuel, Fellini um, all kinds of things and so basically but it was someone like Bresson especially who uh, like his um, way of framing uh, shots, uh, the acting, the way he directed the actors, um, that that mystical quality that came through in his work uh, just kind of gripped me and and I was gone from that point. And mm. then, of course, I'd see more of his films. I'd see other people, Dreyer and, and Ozu, you know, those transcendental cinema kind of people and and... Yeah, all the poetry. I mean, the thing about the cinema is that, um, you know, it, it contains everything, all mm. the other art forms. So poetry is in there. And, of course, we're talking cinematic poetry. We're not talking, ver you know, words. We're not talking verbal poetry, which I actually don't like much or don't understand much. But <laughs> um, So, yeah, the cinema kind of has everything. It's one of those all-encompassing art forms that, I think a lot of people fall in love with. So I fell in love as, with it as a cinephile. Mm -hmm. But then for some reason I thought, hey, I'd like to do that too. So, Well, the, the, yeah. the mini season on your work is titled The Stuff of Cinema, uh, yes. The Prolific Independence of Bill Masoulis, and it is screening this Wednesday at ACME. For more information, you can head to melbournecinematech.org. And if you'd like to read Fiona's excellent article on Bill's short, head to censusofcinema.com. Uh, up next, we've got some reviews for you. Fiona, you have selected two fantastic retro titles for us to discuss tonight. The first is um, Christoph Klosowski's uh, A Short Film About Killing from 1988. And the second is Nanny Moretti's Mia Madre from 2015. Both films are currently streaming on SBS On Demand. I feel like most many listeners will be familiar with Klosowski's work, notably the Three Colours trilogy, which uh, there was an amazing 4K restoration of the trilogy that screened at this year's Europa Europa 
Film Festival. Um, and Kluskowski's films have also played at MIFF and Melbourne Cinematheque in the past. Um, but before we get into his 1988 film, a short film about killing, which actually isn't a short film, but it does feature a lot of killing, uh, what can you tell us about Klosowski as an auteur? Uh, he's Polish. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not actually overly familiar with him as an auteur. Um, I mean, obviously those the Three Colours trilogy is very... Yeah well-known, um, and I think he's a very uh, accomplished filmmaker, obviously, mm. um, uh, you know, and but um, it's interesting, you know, uh, so the, sh- the short film about killing is one of the, was originates from Decalogue, which is a TV series that he made, and it's comprised of um, like 10 different films and each film is on one of the 10 commandments. And so there's a short film about love and a short film about killing and so forth. Um, and uh, the short, so the short film about killing segment was kind of turned into an extended full uh, feature length film. Um, so it was made in 1988, quite a few years before the trilogy. Um, and it's, I, I love it because of its simplicity, actually. It's, um, so it features three main characters and three kind of separate storylines. And at the beginning, those three storylines, uh, three different characters are, uh, are very separate to each other. So you have a young man who's kind of seems to be just aimlessly drifting the streets of Poland. Um, and then you have a, a taxi driver picking up, you know, seedy characters and uh, working the seedy parts of Poland um, and then you have a third this third character who's kind of um, like in a more kind of upper class prestigious uh, aspect of Polish society he's an up-and-coming lawyer and so you have these three disparate characters um, with seemingly no relation between them um, and then as the film unfolds um, the angry the young angry man uh, uh, is picked up by the taxi driver and for no apparent reason um, he um he kills the, the taxi driver and we don't, the, and Kieslowski never really goes into the motivation for why um, the young man uh, 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 undertakes the murder. So, um, but he portrays the murder in quite like, in, in a really kind of, um, uh, in a style that's very upfront mm. and it um, really emphasises the kind of awkwardness of, of murder. Yes. Um, and the brutality of it. That's Uh, such fantastic phrasing, actually. And just on that, I watched this uh, today and I'd re-watched Lovesick in Melbourne, Bill's film, the day prior, and I couldn't help but draw a parallel (laughs) with how they both present murder on screen in this very flat way. Mm. I I know that this, obviously, um, Michael Haneke, his work is, is after Kosowski. So I'm wondering, is this where, you know, is this his, as he got, I feel like when you watch films from, you know, you go back through cinema history and you realise maybe unconscious or, or very clear, deliberate influences on work. Um, but yes, I love the, the, the phrasing of that. That's exactly, it's almost like a flatness to this and, and no judgment also in, in some ways. It kind of has this ambiguous space which also lovesick in Melbourne <laughs> seems to delight in yeah. in ambiguity yeah yeah it's interesting um it's interesting Bill that you do 
that you, you that you've made a film that involves this kind this kind of dark aspect of of human of the human condition, um, yeah. which is pretty different to a lot of your other stuff. It, it, it is, but um, I've, I've kind of had a fascination with murderers and like serial killers and people like that, and they've they've been in my work a little bit, um, and. It, I, I think it's just like the extremes of the soul, like the different states of the soul. Like, so love on one extreme where you, you know, you're full of love and, you know, for other people, and and murder is the other extreme where you sort of almost want to annihilate yourself as well as the other person. And and these two extremes of the soul um, are, are kind of, you know, they're kind of symbolic, and so it it's, it carries symbolic weight and. Even Bresson mm-hmm. uses it in La Jeanne, um, his last film, and I think he's got killing in maybe another film or two, maybe not, but in, in La Jeanne, um, his last film, it's quite marked there. So it's kind of that thing of just expressing the soul. It's 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 uppermost beauty, but also it's most um, horrific kind of, um, you know, violence and mm. and and nothingness um, mm. you know well, at the other end so mm. well, yeah well definitely in, in Kieslowski's film so that it is an act of horrific violence and it happens about a, like a third or halfway through the film um and then from there the um uh, so the the then it cuts to like a future time period and the young uh man who killed who committed the the, the murder he's um going through the legal processes and um, he's being he's in court and he's being held accountable for the act of violence and he's he's represented by the third character who's a lawyer the up-and-coming lawyer the, the other third character in the film um, and uh, it's interesting so they go through the the processes of of the court case and um, the young man is found guilty uh, for this uh, act of violence for this murder and then he's sentenced to death and then the last third of the film is kind of this really horrible, gripping, um, uh, drawn-out affair in which he's on death row and mm-hmm. then he's awaiting his state-sanctioned death. And and then, of course, as uh, Kieslowski, as he showed the, the, the as he depicted the, the act of murder in this kind of flat style, he also depicts the act of um, the hanging in mm-hmm. the same kind of way, uh, emphasising the awkwardness of the act and the... Um, fundamental kind of barbarity of it really mm. so the film ends just after the the death of hand by hanging mm. um and and it seems like you know Kis point is that violence and murder is whether it's is condoned by the state or whether it's an act of arbitrary violence it's never it can never be um condoned or accepted well it's interesting because this film and for listeners who are just tuned in we are discussing um, a retro title tonight, a short film about killing from 1988. Um, I understand that this film, um, after its release, it was um, credited with the abolition of the death penalty. It's kind of interesting because when you're talking about it, Fiona, I was thinking so much about how it does leave it open to interpretation. It's a very philosophical approach to narrative in which characters there's so much in there where there's deliberations and these big discussions and 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 thoughts about morality mm. are played out on screen, but not in a closed off way, in a very um, productive mm. and generative way. 
and yet it kind of had this impact. It makes me think – I hadn't watched this film before. I, this was a, somehow an omission in my, my film uh, <laughs> knowledge. So I was del- – delighted is maybe not the right phrase to use. I was really in, um, got a lot out of seeing this film and understanding the impact it's had, not in, just in cinema but also on a societal level and thinking about how powerful cinema is to – create something like this to prompt discussion to actually have an impact on policy and um yeah and mm. it's something that stood out I don't know if this is um a strange thing to pick out after you've done such a beautiful job of detailing the narrative but the the green lens or green tint or filter on this film is just gorgeous to look at um the characters mm. the framing there's so much in the visual design of this film that I I just found it stunning uh, and it's it's um it's really depicting quite a bleak um world and, and characters who are really caught and and um pained a lot of the time but it, it just presents them in this beautifully poetic way I was, I was really captivated by this yeah yeah actually you've just reminded me flick that yeah like so within the frame like there's this section of the frame that's actually um shrouded in darkness yes so it's kind of like a, a third of the frame is yeah. like this yeah woozy and it's very unusual to so see that and what, it's a bit yeah off-putting. what is that from is that is that uh, a creative decision or is that like de- yeah. a degradation oh i thought no, it might have been degradation of film or something i was trying to understand it mm. no my, my understanding is completely intentional and i think it's i think the idea behind it is the idea that um the the vision uh of the character is um is, is shrouded or clouded mm. like mm. they it's a reflection on the, the yeah the young man's uh vision of the world and or, or mental state or a reflection of his own deterioration and yeah uh whatever but um jo- jonathan rosenbaum wrote it's possibly the most powerful movie ever made about the death penalty uh, mm. and i agree actually mm. and, and like you say like it does open to debate and discussion it's not it's not necess- it's not didactic um but I think it, it's. I think its underlying message is, is pretty clear. You know? mm. I, um, so, well, yeah. listeners who are intrigued to to see a short film about killing, which is a retro title, it came out in 1988. It is currently streaming on SBS on demand. Uh, and after the sponsorship announcements, we will get on to Fiona's second pick, which actually I um, I feel like fits in very well with this discussion about cinema as a political tool, as a influential tool. Um, but you'll have to stay tuned to listen to more of that. Now, Fiona, we did your uh, first retro title pick of the night. It's now time for your second, Nanny Moretti's Mia Madre from 2015. Um it's currently streaming again on SBS On Demand. I'm glad you've chosen a free streaming service. I'm a big fan of um, SBS On Demand. Now, there's been a bit of buzz about Moretti um, in the last few days because his most recent release, A Brighter Tomorrow, just played at Cannes Film Festival, I believe, um, and it's been described as a multi-layered love letter to filmmaking in the age of streaming giants. So it works out very well in tonight's discussion. Now, I don't think SVS On Demand is one of the streaming giants that Moretti had in mind when he waxed lyrical about the magic of seeing a film in a cinema theatre. But either way, his 2015 film, Mia Madre, 
is currently available to stream. Um, Mia Madre, of course, translates to My Mother. Uh, it tells the story of Margarita, who is played by Margarita Bai, uh, a filmmaker who must deal with the impending and inevitable uh, deterioration of her mother. Uh, it is about caring for a parent through a terminal illness, but it's also a film about filmmaking. And Moretti stars, uh, himself stars as uh, Margarita's brother, Giovanni, which is Nani's name, um, Giovanni. Um, now, Fiona, I understand that Moretti often stars in his own films. Um, what, what can you tell us about his approach to filmmaking? Um, well, yeah, so, yeah, it's very hands-on. And, he, he, yes, he often uh, writes, directs and stars in the films. And he's, um, he's uh, like... In the past, there's been a kind of a very much of a comedy humour element to his films, uh, uh, you know, a, a strange kind of satire. Um, and I guess his performance uh, attempts to convey some of that humour as well. Uh, however, so Mia Madre doesn't have... Uh, uh, he plays the brother of Margarita. Um, there are some humorous elements in the film, uh, in particular around the American, um, the, the American actor, who so yes. yeah John, John, John Turturro so Margarita who's the main uh character in the film she's making she's a filmmaker so often Moretti will uh there's that kind of very self-reflective aspect of his films they often films about people making films um and sometimes he plays the filmmaker but in this case he doesn't he plays the filmmaker's sister um and uh he plays he's the sorry he plays the brother of the filmmaker and uh so the filmmaker is, is a woman margarita she's making a film it's about uh it's set in a factory and the work the factory workers are going on strike uh and there's quite a few complications with the shoot she doesn't she doesn't uh that she finds the, the crew competent uh so she has to deal with com- incompetent crew uh lots of hiccups in the shoot um and then the main star of the film is John Turturro, who's come over from America, and he's kind of a, he's a real comedian. Like he's, he's a real character. Yeah, he's kind of – I love him, firstly, just as an actor, but I think he's fantastic in this. I was surprised by how much I laughed in a film about terminal illness. Um, it's, it's really – his performance is really great and believable and there's a lot of um, – I feel like characters are given a lot of time and uh, allowed to be both and other <laughs> a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but he, he is a, he. Um, there's quite a bit of conflict between him yes. and filmmaker Margarita, and that kind of climaxes in this fantastic scene in which she um, they have a, a massive argument, um, and it's it's quite I don't know it's it's quite uh, powerful actually. Um, so, but the the point is that Margarita's dealing with uh, you know she's got a lot on her plate. She's caring for her mother who has a terminal illness in hospital, uh, so she's. Uh, preoccupied with that she's dealing with a difficult shoot um she's dealing with a, a teenage daughter who's a bit um off the rails uh so there's lots of things happening in her life um and I feel um uh, yeah I just feel like it's a it's a very beautiful film um I can't quite put my finger on why I like it so much but I think um like Moretti in in this film he is trying to explore, you know, quite serious issues, you know, like the loss of a parent, more, you know, the, the things about fear and fear of losing those that you love the most. 
Um, and he's never he's never kind of simplistic about it. I feel like he's very respectful of of the of, of the characters and their complexities and their contradictions. Um, and just and and uh, yeah, I, it's never it never falls into the trap of being you know really sentimental um, or schmaltzy. It's mm. actually very um, yeah very moving that's yeah. tr- that's so true and i'm glad you 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 phrased that fantastically fiona that it it really does uh walk a very fine line it could at so many moments become schmaltzy or or become uh almost like a caricature you know characters could so easily fall into those traps but it really doesn't he's quite quite restrained and quite masterful in that that tone but it, creates a very fresh film. Um, I I found those scenes where Margarita and her brother Giovanni are caring for their mother so realistic and also just on an emotional level there's there's lots of nightmares that um, Margarita has and, it, you know, it just worked in so seamlessly and it doesn't feel like a dream sequence. It just feels like we're sitting with her you know, it has elements of it being hyper real, of course, but I just feel like it just worked with the pacing of it, and it mm. almost had a, a slow slowness to it um, and a, an ease in order to talk about these very intense and and quite upsetting life events. And I, mm. uh, to be honest, Moretti was not really on my radar as a filmmaker, and. Having seen Mia Madre, I now am very interested to see um, his latest release and, and kind of go back through his filmography. And that's one of the great things about when you do pick out or able to put a spotlight on some of these retro titles is that we can so easily miss over films. So I hope that um, that people listening will will check it out. I, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, Bill, I don't think you had a chance to see Mia Madre, had you? But uh, no, 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 I haven't seen it. Uh, I've seen some of his earlier work from the 90s, uh, uh, April, uh, Caro Diario, um, The Sun's Room. Um, you, you know that when he first started in the late 70s, he was just making films on Super 8. Oh. They were really kind of anarchic and I haven't seen any of them, but he, he had a real kind of cult uh, following and and I think we're, and he was quite prolific and... And I think with a little bit of time, it kind of went to the point of uh, Caro Diario, Dear Diary. Um, and that was in about 93, 94, maybe, mm. or around that kind of time. And that became a huge festival smash. And mm. then all of a sudden, we all knew Moretti's name. And and he was, you know, in the main festivals, he was, create, um, uh, you know, treated like an auteur and, and all that. So he's an interesting figure for sure. Mm. Also very political. He was a yes. member of the Italian yes. Com- Communist Party yes. uh, in his mm. 20s and a lot of his films have these kind of wild sequences of kind of political uh, aspects and all uh, kind of Marxist themes through them. But I feel like that that has really toned down over the years mm. and that his, more re- his mm. recent work is much more... Concerned, much more just concerned with uh, dra- dramas and almost melodramas, but uh, melodramas that are also very realist and honest. Um, and uh, but also overall, his films are self-reflexive because they're about film filmmakers making films. Um, mm. So he hasn't lost that kind of modernist quirk. Yeah, and um, we should mention that the film that Margarita is making is a 
seemingly political film. It's about a union boss, um, unions rising up against their boss. So it has this mm. political thread through it. But, yeah, you're right, it does seem to be much more focused on the melodrama of these characters. I, I really enjoyed watching this. Um, Me Madre uh, I, I, is currently streaming on SBS on Demand. Um, they're usually up there for a while, so you can check that out while you're watching a short film on killing. On tonight's show, uh, we talked about Melbourne Cinematheque's upcoming spotlight on the 40-year career of Bill Masoulis. There will be a f- screening of his film Love, sorry, Lovesick in Melbourne, uh, 7 p.m. this Wednesday at Acme, preceded by two of Bill's earlier works on Super 8, Dreams Never End from 1983 and Melbourne 89, exploring the cultural top co- top top co- Topography. Thank you. Topography. <laughs> Gosh. Of Melbourne and Bill, uh, you're going to be there in person to introduce both these films oh, yeah, yeah, screenings. Be there, yeah. That'll be great. I, th- I think it's probably like the most exciting night on, on Melbourne Film Culture's oh, c- calendar. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you can head to melbournecinematech.org for more information and also to buy your ticket. Um, and Fiona recommended two excellent retro titles that are currently available to stream on SBS On Demand. We had uh, Christoph Klisklowski's A Short Film About Killing and Nanny Moretti's Mia Madre uh, to read Fiona's article on Bill's work and, and indeed any of the annotations uh, that accompany Melbourne Cinematheque screenings, you can head to censorsofcinema.com. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 